Okay, how about now? All right, good morning. <laughs> every, uh, every year, I think to myself, it would be really good to preach a sermon on giving thanks the week of Thanksgiving. And every year, I never do it. And so uh, maybe next year we'll, we'll have a Thanksgiving sermon. Uh, but this year is not the year. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. The question, why am I here, is a fundamental question that human beings have been asking, puzzling about, philosophizing about for thousands and thousands of years. And really much of man's existence is spent trying to either find meaning or assign meaning to the purpose of life. Have you ever wondered about that question? Why do I exist? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Well, this question was not at the forefront of the Protestant Reformation. As we've been looking at the, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation over the past couple of weeks, this question was not a hotly debated one. But it is a question that cannot be separated from the Protestant Reformation either. As we've looked at the other solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone is our authority, sola gratia, that we're saved by grace alone, sola fide, we're saved through faith alone, sola Christus, we're saved by Christ alone. Uh, as we've been looking at those questions, those solas, they're really dealing with controversial issues. Right? Is scripture or the Roman Catholic Church our authority? Is grace or works what saves us? Is it through faith or by our own efforts? Is it through Christ or Christ plus other mediators, right? Those were the questions being debated. But this morning's sola, as I mentioned, not one that was debated, but it was really a sola that ties everything together. This morning we're looking at soli deo gloria. And this sola is kind of the, the thread that runs through all of them, all of the other solas. Soli deo gloria refers to the reality that the end goal, the purpose of our salvation, uh, the, the main result of our reconciled relationship with God is His glory. Is His glory. The purpose of our salvation is God's glory alone. It belongs to Him and no other. That's what this sola means. The Westminster Catechism, which was written about 100 years or so after the Reformation, captures this well in its first question. What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of man? And the answer that it gives is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? We are here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, as I mentioned, this was not a debated issue during the Reformation. Right? The Catholic Church was not burning people at the stake who said we should glorify God. That was not a controversy but it is the inevitable implication of the other four solas. After all, if God's Word is the only authority we have, and it comes from Him, and if we are saved through God's grace alone as a gift, it comes from Him. If we're saved through faith in Christ, faith being itself a gift from God, and Christ being the Savior that God has sent to do 100% of the work of salvation, then all glory must go to God. That's the biblical picture. So look with me at Romans 11, 
36. This is going to be our diving board text. We're going to jump off of this into a couple other places in Scripture. Let's read Romans 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's read that one more time. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray as we come to the word of God. Our great and holy God, you are mysterious in your working. Your thoughts are not like our thoughts. Your ways are not like our ways. And yet, Lord, you have given us a glimpse. You have given us a, 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 a picture magnificent from our perspective and yet just a fraction of what you have done and what you are doing from your perspective. But you have given us that window in your word into who you are, into what you have done for us in Christ and what you have commanded us to do. We thank you for the word of God, for the scriptures that we are able to open up today in our own language that we understand, that we are able to read. Lord, this was something that Christians 600 years ago could not do. And so we thank you for your providence in history that we can read your word in our own language. But Lord, we know that that is not enough. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to guide us and teach us. We need your spirit to convict us and encourage us. We need your spirit to illuminate the truth of your word to us, to give us not just factual understanding, but rather to understand how to live out your will as it's portrayed for us in the scriptures. And Lord, as we come to look at your glory today, the fact that you alone are to be glorified in salvation, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts afresh with zeal to glorify you. That as we consider your sovereignty and our salvation, that we would be eager, desirous to praise your name and yours alone. We pray for your help today as we come to your word. Teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now as we look at this one verse, Romans eleven thirty six, uh, we can really be deceived by its simplicity. It seems... It seems Simple. There's not a bunch of big, complicated theological terms going on here. It, it, it seems to be simple. And in some ways it is, yet in others it is deeply, deeply profound. Now before we go any further in, in looking at this one specific verse, let's, let's back up to about 30,000 feet through the previous chapters of Romans so we can understand the context here. Uh, Paul has spent all of chapters, we could say 9 through 11, talking about the fulfillment of God's redemption in history. In history. Uh, how God's work of predestination works out with individuals, with the nation of Israel in Romans chapter 9. Uh, we see the spiritual blindness of the Jews and the necessity of preaching the gospel for salvation in Romans chapter 10. Uh, the mystery of Gentiles being grafted into and included as members of God's covenant people, spiritual Israel, we could say, in Romans chapter 11. 
And it's out of these, these high and lofty realities of redemption that Paul is led to worship. He's been reflecting on the great and mighty works of God throughout history, and he bursts into praise in verse 33 of Romans 11. Look what he says there. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Uh, he, he, he quotes here from Isaiah, For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He is worshiping God here. He is bursting out in praise. And he closes in verse 36 with a doxology, ascribing more praise to God. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. That's what's leading up to this one verse here. Paul's not just dropping it here as a little verse for us to put on coffee mugs or something like that. It is a rich, rich verse. And Paul tells us in Romans 30, 11, 36 that all things, all things are from, through, and to God. All things. And by this, Paul's referring to the overarching sovereignty of God over human history, that God has ordained the events of history, that God has orchestrated and worked out and accomplished salvation for his people in history. So this phrase, all things, really does mean all things are from, to, and through him. There's no rogue element here in light of God's sovereignty. As R.C. Sproul liked to say, there's not one Adam that uh, Christ does not claim his lordship over. And of course, in the context of the five solas, our salvation falls under this category of all things, doesn't it? And in fact, God's redemptive plan is the purpose of human history. So given that that's the case, given that when we read all things, we can also read salvation, our redemption, we're going to see these main points here in Romans eleven thirty six 36, that salvation is from God, it is through God, and salvation is for God's glory. Let's look at our, our first point here. Our salvation is from God. And Paul tells us this in really no uncertain terms. All things, including our salvation, are from Him. Our salvation, in other words, has its origination in Him. He is the author of our salvation. He is the one who plans it out. And yet, even this simple statement, our salvation is from God, is amazingly profound. I mean, we, we, we cannot even get to the bottom <laughs> of that one little word from him. I, we, we really can't. We get a grasp, but we can't get to the bottom of it. Uh, but we do get a more detailed look at what that means in Scripture, this declaration that echoes throughout the halls of eternity. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and we will, we will jump off of our diving board here into Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. 
according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Did you ever watch that show on Discovery Channel, How It's Made? Ever watch that? It's fascinating, right? We, we have these products, uh, and, and since things are so complicated in our technological age, we wonder how, right, how, how does somebody make an iPad? How does somebody make a car? How do these things come to be? And that show's very fascinating because it takes you from beginning to end, the process of that being made. It's the behind-the-scenes look, in other words. Well, Ephesians chapter 1 is, in a way, the how it's made of our redemption. It is a sneak peek into what is happening behind the scenes. But one major difference that we need to understand between God and us is that God is outside of time. God is outside of time. We are not. We are in time. Our existence is isolated to history, right? We live, we die, we decay. All those things happen because we are in time. God is above and outside of time. He fills time, we could say. There was a time before any of us existed, and that is not the same reality about the Holy Trinity. And so as we read these verses here in Ephesians 1, we see that our salvation was not something that was planned starting at a moment in time, but it was something that was planned from before time itself. As Paul says, from before the foundation of the world. And this passage elaborates on the way in which that happened, and the way, the way in which our salvation is from God. We see first here in verse 3, the attention is turned to God the Father. That He is the one who has planned our redemption. He is the one who has blessed us in Christ. It's the Father who chose to send His Son. It's the Father who is the source of all blessings which are given to us in and through Christ, as verse 3 tells us. But, but again, Paul goes back even further. Before Christ was born, before the Son took on human flesh in the Incarnation, Paul goes back before time even existed. Look at verse 4. We see here that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul tells us. Now, in our modern American Christian context, many people get a little confused and even a little uncomfortable with this kind of language. God chose me. I thought I chose God. And now, this verse does not deny that we do choose to trust Christ. But it gets all the way back to the beginning, right? Our salvation is not a question of the chicken or the egg, right? Uh, it's not, well, maybe God chose, maybe man chose, it doesn't really matter. No, the verse tells us very clearly, God chose us first. Not based on anything good in us, not based on any choices we would make, but what does Paul tell us? According to the purpose of his will. But what does this mean that God chose us, as the apostle says? Well. The Apostle Paul uses an illustration in Romans 9 as an example to flesh this out further. We don't need to turn there now, but he uses the example of Jacob and Esau. They were both children of Isaac, right? Isaac was the one, uh, the son of, of Abraham, of course, who received the covenant promise. He has two sons, Esau and Jacob, both children of Isaac, yet only one was chosen by God to receive that promise of the covenant. Only one of them was the child of the promise, Paul says. And, and Paul explains this. He says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but of Him who calls, Romans 9, 11. In other words, just like God did not choose Jacob over Esau because Jacob had done or would do certain good deeds or Jacob had some inherent good quality, God chose Jacob over Esau 
to continue the covenant because of God's own purpose, period. There's no more room to put anything else in there. God's own purpose. And this choosing, Paul says, happened, verse 4, before the foundation of the world. This happened before you and I existed, before creation had even occurred. It happened before the fall of man, even. God chose whom he would save. And this is essentially what is meant by this word predestined that we see in verse 5, that God has set us apart for a purpose. Uh, in this case, the purpose, as Paul tells us, as adoption, as sons, through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to clear up some misconceptions that people have about uh, that word predestination, right? Because that can be a hot-button word, right? There's some, uh, you know, no shortage of theological ink has been spilled on that topic. Um, So so let's kind of maybe clear up a couple things. So first, people tend to think that predestination means that God looks down the corridors of time and, and he sees who will choose him based on their own free will, right? In other words, God looks to the future, he sees Bob, he sees Sue, Well, Bob would believe the gospel and choose to follow Christ of his own free will. Sue won't, so God predestines and chooses Bob based on Bob's choice. Uh, But there's three problems with that understanding. So first, there's no biblical or linguistic basis for predestined in the Greek meaning that. It's just not not what it means, right? Um, Second, this view also erroneously makes God's choice subject to man's choice. God's will ends up being limited by man's will, and that's backwards. That's backwards, right? God does not subject himself to man's free will. Third, when we read the rest of the Bible, right? We've been going through Romans in our fellowship group studies, and we see that the moral and spiritual condition of man is dead and wicked, right? It is not good. Man will not and and really is unable to respond to the gospel unless God changes his heart first. The second uh, issue that people tend to have with this term predestination is is that they actually misunderstand what's meant by the word. Here's what I mean. A lot of people have this idea that when God predestines people, right, that what's happening is that everybody starts out in the middle and that God sends some people to heaven and some people to hell before anybody's done anything good or bad. God just arbitrarily assigns eternal destinies. Have you thought about predestination like that? Is that maybe what your understanding has been? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible says predestination is or what God does. The Bible describes a scenario in which we all start down here at the bottom. Because of our own natural sinfulness, if we continue in our own natural way, of our own free will, we could say, we will free will ourselves right to hell. That's what's going to happen. right? That's what is the reality. If we continue on our own natural course, even if we hear the gospel, we will sin and rebel our way to condemnation. We're left to our own sinful free will. That's what will happen. And God would be just to let us do that. He would be just to let us do that. But that's not what he does. Instead, he chooses to show some mercy. Again, we go back to Romans chapter 9. We see this played out. So really, you know, what's happening, and I think it's important to see something here in verse 5, right? Verse verse 4, verse 5, depending on your translation here. It says, in love, He predestined us. God's act of predestination is not one of cruelty or arbitrariness or or capriciousness or randomness. It is an act of love. Really, the biblical picture is this. 
We're all down here. And God in his mercy chooses some to save. None of us are worthy of that. But God shows mercy to some. He doesn't have to show mercy to anyone. Right, so the question is often, why doesn't God just save everybody? Well, really, the question should be, why should God save one? Why should God save one at all? No, what the apostle tells us with absolute clarity is that our salvation, our being chosen, our predestination, our adoption, is not according to our purposes in any way, but according to the purpose of His will. Verse 5. His will. Our salvation from its beginning to end right, is found in the purposes of God and no other. And if we were to look down at verses 9 and 10 of this same chapter, Paul describes the revealing of the mystery of this will in the salvation that comes through Christ, which inevitably and eventually results in the reconciliation of all things back to himself. And ultimately, this reality that our salvation originates in God himself uh, this reality that our salvation is from God should result in what? What do we see at the end of verse 6 or the beginning of verse 6? The praise of His glorious grace. The reality that our salvation is from God is to the praise of His glorious grace. He alone is to be glorified here. And how could, be, how could it be any other way? After all, if God is the one who planned our salvation from before the foundation of the world, not based on us in any way, shape, or form. If God truly predestines and choosing, uh, chooses according to the purpose of His will, as the text of Scripture says, then who else could glory go to? Who else could glory go to? All praise belongs to God. All glory belongs to Him. Because salvation is from God, all glory goes to Him alone. But of course, God didn't just plan redemption. He didn't just write up a good plot. But God actually accomplishes our redemption as well. That's our second point. Salvation is through God. Salvation is through God. And Paul tells us, we turn back to Romans 11.36 for about 30 seconds, uh, that all things, including our salvation, are from God and through God as well. God is the one who executes our salvation in history. He's not only the author of our salvation, but he is the accomplisher of our salvation, too. God comes to save us, not just to make salvation possible. There's a big difference there, right? Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, and we will see this coming about in our realities. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a great text. 
And we've already seen that God is the one who planned our salvation. Ephesians 1 made that clear, even down to the details of who he would choose to show mercy to, which should humble us according to his purpose. Uh, But here, what we're reading about is the actual application of our salvation, right? It's the intersection of God's timeless plan of redemption and our lives over here in history. This is where they meet, right here. And what we see in this text is that God must be the one to accomplish and apply our salvation because we are unwilling and unable to do it ourselves. In verse 3, we see a description of life B.C., right? Life before Christ. Uh, It's not a pretty picture. Uh, It includes really a picture of all humanity in their natural state, in our natural state. Not a positive word to be found, right? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures malicious, envious, hating, and hateful. It's not good, right? Foolish in our minds is a result of sin, disobedient to God's commands, led astray from God's truth, slaves to our desires instead of righteousness, living lives of enmity towards others instead of uh, love. Ephesians 2 describes us as being spiritually dead. The people that we once were had no desire to actually trust God in a saving way, nor the ability to believe in the gospel. Maybe to assent, yeah, sure, I believe that that happened in history, but certainly not the ability to trust Christ. A dead man cannot grab a life preserver. And so in verses 4 and 5, we see that God had to be the one to come to us. God had to be the one to come and save us us. And this is rooted in God's own character. Look at verse 4, what we see. Paul describes the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. There we were in our state of sin, verse 3, our, our state of rebellion, and something amazing happened. The goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, Paul says. What does this refer to? This is the birth the death, the life of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. Now, Paul, of course, is speaking as somebody who was alive when Jesus came to earth. Right? Paul was walking on the same ground that Jesus was. So for him, the appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God in Christ's life and ministry was an immediate historical reality. But make no mistake, it is not less historically impactful for you and me 2,000 years later than it was for Paul. God sends His Son, God manifests His goodness and loving kindness, not out of necessity, not because God owes us anything, but out of His free love, His free goodness, His free kindness in His own nature towards sinners. That is amazing. There's nothing in us that convinces God to redeem us, but He does it out of His nature. He does it because of who He is. And that is a far more comforting place to be because you and I change. He does not. His goodness, His loving kindness, His faithfulness does not waver day to day like you and I do. That gives us great comfort and assurance that He will not take our salvation away. But we read in verse 5, three wonderful words. He saved us. 
he saved us. We don't read that God made salvation a potential opportunity for us. We read that he saved us, that he actually accomplished and applied our salvation. 100%. At its core, salvation is not something that we accept so much as it is something we receive, as we'll see in a minute. But in verse 5, we see clearly that our salvation and our redemption is not based in any way, shape, or form on our works. Paul says it's not done, or it's not, it's not because of anything done by us in righteousness. That's not why God saves us. It can't be, because we saw in verse 3, we have none to offer. Even if we did, that wouldn't erase the guilt of our sin. So we must understand, and we in no way, shape, or form make the first move towards God. He moves towards us. And that's the very next thing we see here in verse 5. Our salvation doesn't come about in our response to our character, but because of God's own mercy. That's why God saves us, because of His own mercy. That's the motivator for God, according to His own mercy. Mercy. He saves because of his purposes, his character, his plan. And we're reminded here of sola gratia, aren't we? That our salvation is a gracious gift we could never earn. But verse 6 goes one step further. Well, verse 5 and verse 6 together really do. The actual application of our salvation in time and space is a sovereign work of God. We read that God saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. This is what we call being born again, being regenerated. This is the event in which God instantaneously gives a sinner a new heart, removing that old stony heart that's bent against him, bent against his will, that's incapable of faith, and giving us instead a heart that is spiritually living, a heart that can know God a heart that can exercise the gift of saving faith in Christ. This is the first event in the application of our salvation. Right? God calls, we, we, we realize that. But our regeneration really is the first moment in history where we are changed, where we are united to Christ. God makes the first and essential move. The Holy Spirit does this, Paul says. The Holy Spirit does this. And, and, and this really draws our attention, kind of go on a slight little detour here, not too much, but to the Trinitarian nature of salvation. Have you ever thought about how each member of the Trinity is involved in a unique way in your redemption? Now, here, here's what I mean. We see that the Father planned our redemption. We've seen that already in Ephesians 1. We know, of course, Christ, the Son, united to human Nature, a human body, goes to the cross to die for us. He's the one who accomplishes our salvation. And the Spirit is the one who applies it to us in space and time. The Spirit is the one here who makes us alive with Christ, who unites us with Him, who gives us that new heart. It's a triune work, Father, Spirit, and Son. But when we consider it like that, we might see it in a little bit of a different light. Father's planning, the Son's accomplishment, the Spirit's application, that's something we receive. We are passive from God's perspective. We are passively receiving that gift of salvation. That doesn't mean, again, that we don't genuinely, freely choose to follow Christ, but that that is actually 
our response flowing out of what God's already done. It's what Paul is telling us here in Titus. It's something we receive more than it is something we accept. Remember, verse 3 told us here in Titus, we, are, we were lost in sin. We were lost in rebellion. We could not take the first step towards God in faith and repentance. And so rather than God leaving us to ourselves, He comes to us. He saves us. He regenerates us so that we can respond in faith and repentance. That is the gift of gifts. And so we see salvation is through God. He is the one who is actually accomplishing it in our hearts, in our lives, in space and time. Again, this does not mean we're robots or puppets or that God saves us apart from our hearing and believing the gospel and responding to the gospel. Of course we do. But it's to say that God saves us through those means. Right? It is, think about it for a minute. Think about when you heard the gospel. When you heard the gospel, where you were. And most of us have probably heard it many, many times before we believed it. But do you think that a single one of those times where you heard the gospel was an accident? I don't think so. Do you think that God lost control of some evangelists for a minute and they were running around for you? No, of course not. No. Every time we hear the gospel, that's God at work, providentially. That's not an accident. But remember, our salvation is from God, even down to those details. So yes, of course, we, we, we hear the gospel, we believe it. That's, that's a free choice we're making, again. But God is the one who has put everything in place so that we will believe the gospel freely, according to his sovereignty. It's an amazing thing. It's God who gives us that gift of faith. So all of it's through God. All of it's through God, we could say. And so even in this one short passage, right, we see the other soul is on display. We're reminded God's the ultimate actor in salvation from beginning to end, right? As Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He began this good work in regenerating us. He will complete that good work when Christ returns. It's ultimately in his hands. He's holding both ends of the rope for us. And so we must ask, what credit can we take? What glory could be given to us? Not only is our salvation from God, it is through God. We receive it, and what glory are we owed for that? So sometimes when, when we give our testimonies, we maybe need to rethink how we do that. We maybe need to rethink how we do that. Um, so oftentimes, Christian testimonies end up, I made this great decision, right? Um, here was my life, and then, God showed me the, these things, but I made this really good decision to follow Jesus. Right? And I'm certainly not saying that's all Christian testimonies. It's certainly not. But we need to think about when we're, when we're explaining how Christ saved us. Are we putting more emphasis on a, a good choice we made or on his grace? Because it's all through him. It's all through him. What glory are we owed for that? And that's why at the end of Romans 11:36 we see that our salvation is from, through, and to God. For his glory, to God for his glory. And Paul writes, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So our last point, our salvation is for God's glory. It's for God's glory. Our salvation is, as we read, to God. It is to God. In other words, it circles back 
to Him. And we absolutely benefit from salvation, don't we? Very much so. Our salvation is for us, uh, of course. We're the beneficiaries of it. There's a bigger picture, too. Our salvation all comes back to God. It's about whose purposes? His. His. Right? And, of course, God has numerous purposes in His plan of redemption. He reconciles us to Himself. Right? He forgives our sins. He makes us new creations. He gives us a new heart. He gives us eternal life. And these are amazing and wonderful gifts. And there's so many more we could add to that list. It's really wonderful. And we, we really, you know, we really can't overlook that fact. That God's purpose in salvation is, in a sense, to restore our relationship with Him. Right? That's, that's what's being accomplished. It is, in some degree, about fellowship with Him. And we, we shouldn't ignore that. We shouldn't minimize that either. But there is something even greater that results from that fellowship we have with Him. There's something greater that results from our salvation. There is a greater purpose. Because it's not ultimately about us, but about Him. It's not ultimately about us, but about Him. Our salvation is for God's glory alone. Alone. For His glory and nobody else's. Soli Deo Gloria. Now we talk about God's glory all the time, don't we? Right? Especially, you know, we're, we're in a more, more reform-leaning church. Of course, we talk about God's glory a lot. Uh, and, and, and we should. Right? When somebody gives us a compliment, Curtis, what do we say? To God be the glory, right? Curtis is the master. Uh, and, and that's a good thing to say, right? We are acknowledging God's the one who should be glorified in this. Um, but there's a chance that if we don't think about what we're saying, it becomes a cliche. Right? Uh, so what do we mean when we talk about God's glory? Well, first, God's glory is an attribute. It's an attribute of God. It's, it's part of who He is. Um, it, it's the splendor of His attributes revealed through His works, we could say. Right? God's glory is the splendor of His attributes revealed through His works. But that's not really what's meant when we read what Paul writes here, to Him be glory forever. Amen. So we're not going to spend this morning talking about that attribute of God. We can't add to God's inherent glory, can we? We can't make Him more glorious or less glorious. We, we have no ability to do that in any way, shape, or form. What Paul's talking about when he says to him, be glory forever, he's talking about glorifying God, ascribing and describing his glory in a worshipful way. Right? Ascribing uh, is saying, God, you are this. You are this. You are this. We sang it this morning. You are the first. You go before. Right? Glory in the highest belongs to you. So we're ascribing glory to God by describing who He is, what He's done, and praising Him in that. Describing God's glory is saying, brother, sister, this is what God has done. Let me tell you about what He's done. Let me glorify Him to you. So we do both, right? We ascribe and describe God and His works in a worshipful way. Not just, well, on this day and this, God did this, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, God, you are amazing from the heart, right? Worshiping Him, really. And that's what Paul's talking about, worshiping God. When he says, to Him be glory, he is declaring that all praise, all honor, all glory belongs to God and God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. Now God's very clear. He is jealous for what is rightly His. We read in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, 
my glory I give to no other. In other words, God is not pleased when anyone else would be glorified when He alone is the one who should be receiving that honor. And that is not a sinful jealousy. It is a righteous jealousy. Glory and salvation belongs to none but God. That's what Paul tells us. To Him be glory forever. Amen. As we consider how salvation is from God, that He's the one who wisely planned our redemption, all glory belongs to Him. When we consider that salvation is through God, that He's the one who accomplishes and applies it to sinners, all glory belongs to Him. It's the inevitable conclusion if we believe the other four solas. And I would argue if we believe the Bible. And when we step back in time to the Reformation and we look back over the content of the past couple weeks, it becomes clear that the Roman Catholic system actually denies God some of the glory that is due to Him. Right? Instead, we'll give God most of the glory, but we need to give the, the church some of the glory too. We need to give Mary some of the glory. We need to give saints some of the glory. We need to give individuals an opportunity to glory as they're faithful in taking the sacraments. But the biblical picture is that because all things are from, through, and to Him, that He alone deserves the glory, the honor, the praise, the devotion, the reverence, the worship. It is all about Him. It's all about Him. And we say, praise God for the Reformation. It brought us back to this, the centrality of God's glory. That is a wonderful thing. But brothers and sisters, the church in America has drifted so far from some of these other solas that it's drifted from this too. Even in our day, many churches operate in a system where, and many Christians operate in a system where salvation is about my choice. Worship is about my feelings and my experience, my emotions, right? Worship is about uh, me, really. Sermons need to be about my life. The church needs to do what I think it should do and meet my needs. But whose glory is that all about? Man's. That is a man-centered system that is built on pleasing and building up man. But when we look at the five solas, when we see that God has given us, His Word is our only authority and the revelation of the Gospel, when we see that God's given us salvation as a gift of grace through faith in Christ alone, then the only possible conclusion is that all glory belongs to God alone. And so the need for reformation continues today. The need for reformation continues today. We must realize that in our understanding of salvation, Glory belongs to God alone. Then in our approach to worship, both in how we do it and what we are singing, glory belongs to God alone. That in our preaching, glory belongs to God alone. That in our prayer, our singing, our fellowship, glory belongs to God alone. And in our lives, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, whether we wake or sleep, whether we rise up or sit down, whether we speak or think or do or feel, that God's glory would be the desired outcome. To Him alone be glory forever. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. Let's pray.
our Lord and our God, who can compare to you and your greatness and your majesty and your power and your might? There is none like you. Father, Spirit, and Son, the God of our redemption, the God of our salvation, the God of our sanctification, our justification, our glorification, Lord, the God of it all, humble us, Lord. May we have a more exalted view of you and a lower view of ourselves. Lord, so much of our difficulty and our struggle and our sin comes from that perspective being out of balance. So Lord, may we exalt you more, not in our words, not just saying to God be the glory, but desiring zealously, Lord, that to you would be all glory. Lord, help us to worship that you might be glorified. Help us to resist sin that you might be glorified. Help us to dig into your word that you might be glorified, that we might know you more and be able to glorify you more. Help us to consider, Lord, the grace of our salvation, the gift of faith, the work of Christ, and that like Paul, as we think on what you've done, that we would be stirred up to worship and that we would declare your glory forever and ever. Help us, we pray, Lord. Our eyes are so easily distracted. And we love the things of this world too much. We love ourselves too much. May we love you above all, Lord, and desire nothing but your honor and praise to be known. Help us for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.